You are listening to I Don't Deserve a Podcast, Episode 2, I Don't Deserve a Personal Demon Hunter, with special guest, Velvet Wells. Hello and welcome back. My name is Luke Peters, and I don't deserve a podcast, but my guest today, I mean, he he deserves all the amazing accolades he's gotten. He is one of my favorite performers in the city. He is a member of the Holodeck Follies, now on their seventh year of performing together in Star Trek-style improv show. He is now in the Toronto Fringe, which is coming up from the 3rd to the 13th of July, in the Victoria Fringe in August to September, and had just performed his one-man show in... In May in Windsor. Ladies and gentlemen, the Velvet Duke, Velvet Wells. Hello there. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I do feel like I do deserve a podcast and I actually feel like you deserve one too because otherwise I wouldn't get to be here. Oh wow. Guys, it's real. It's happening. It's real. I deserve it. It's our second episode and there I already deserve a podcast. That's we're it. Done. When we were when we were religiously coming up with the idea, we were like talking about the idea where it's like, what happens when I deserve a podcast? Does it become, hey, look at me, I deserve a podcast, and I'm talking to people who don't? Do, do we switch the <laughs> the narrative there? Right, right. So so it becomes like a self help podcast to yeah. to help others find their voice. Their voice on podcasts. You know, they they say that the success of a business you can look back and multiply how long you've been in the business okay. and double it basically and that will be how long you get to survive so you will at least make it to episode four. Oh man i'm pumped yeah. for episode four yeah <laughs> velvet i wanted to bring you on the show for a, a plethora of reasons one because uh, you have a, a fringe show that i got to see a preview of that I really recommend, but I wanted to ask you, what kind of experience had you had with Fringe in the past before you actually applied and got in? Way back before the internet was born, I was invited to be part of somebody's Fringe show. Uh, that show was called Aria de Capo, and I, I think my character's name was Benny. That's pretty much what I remember of the Fringe show itself. But what I enjoyed much more was meeting these new people and we partied a lot. So I had a great Fringe experience, but that's now decades ago. Mm. And uh, and I've gone out to see and support other people with their Fringe productions, but I've never done it. And part of my mantra in life is just if something scares me, I'm going to challenge it. And I think that's actually something we'll we'll, we'll touch on really quickly in, sure. in this show too. But so you got approved your show, Personal Demon Hunter. Correct. Talk to me about coming up with the show. It's your first Fringe show, as you said. What were kind of some of the, the, the issues you had to tackle when, when coming up with a, and it's a one-man show as well. Lots of issues. Yeah. The first one was actually that I wasn't accepted right away Okay. with Toronto. So my goal this year was to do the Toronto Fringe and I wasn't selected for the lottery. And I was willing to walk away at that point, just, you know, go on vacation instead and mope a little bit. And a friend really encouraged me to go and look at the other festivals on the circuit. And so I went and applied for Windsor and got in right away. And I and my spirits were boistered a little bit from that. So I started looking at the East Coast and the West Coast. And my thought was, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go big. So I'm going to do this national tour. And then my boss reminded me that I only have so many vacation days. And uh, and so I had to really limit myself in terms of number of fringes. Mm -hmm. But uh, I then applied for Toronto as a site-specific show. 
And originally I was going to piggyback on somebody else's spot and it wasn't, and it was a month later that I heard, oh, you can't do that. You have to find your own space. So then I reapplied and I, I basically had to beg. So that was a, an emotional roller coaster, just that part of it. And then when it came to, so fast forward, I'm now accepted. I know which ones I'm going to getting into the production itself. I had my script in February. I knew what I was going to do at that point, and then I read through it and realized that I hadn't captured any of the things that I actually wanted to do. I was so busy writing that I forgot to embrace things like my songs matter to me to include those. The mm -hmm. stories that I want to tell matter to include those. So I ended up having to take that first draft and, and all of my good feelings about it and put them aside let it go and rewrite. And that version I also wasn't happy with. And then I started to feel like I was running out of time. So the problem with doing everything solo is you don't have somebody collaborating with you or to pull you off of the roof a little bit and let you know that everything is okay. And this is all very normal. Mm -hmm. And uh, now my partner did she offered that for me, but it's different being in the weeds with it and having somebody going, yeah, yeah, it's okay. They're not doing the work, you know? Yeah. I was given uh, emotional and moral and empathy, you know, all that support, but also, you know, being there, but also it was up to me to do the work. So I got through all of that. And one of the things that helped me get through was another friend asked me how I was doing and whether I was enjoying the process mm. to which I almost, you know, I nearly melted. I was not enjoying the process and I had forgotten even more fundamental to the pieces that I put in the show was this was all for me to have fun. Yeah. And I'd forgotten that. And as soon as I was reminded that and given the permission, I guess, uh, I rewrote my script in a day. And I fell in love with it. And I was able to uh, recapture some of the things from the original script that I that I liked back then. It was just it was just reframing the exactly. material. And then I started to get it on its feet and I took it from this written piece into a performance piece and I started having fun with being in the character. Yeah. So I've had a blast since I, I got over that last hurdle. And then I took it to Windsor and that was a, yet another experience. So the learning I got from that was you're never done. You know, you write it, there's a draft version. I don't deserve a fringe show, I guess, is what yeah, I've learned exactly. is that I'm constantly re uh, learning and relearning as I go through this process of, oh, what's it like to do it for yourself? What's it like to do it for your close friends? What's it like to do it for a preview audience, for a real audience, for a larger audience? For, for a, a paying audience For a as paying well. audience, yeah. So, so there are a lot of aspects of that that I'm discovering. I'm also, although I knew ahead of time that you really have to hustle to get an audience, especially when you're touring, the reality of that really hit me in Windsor because I knew nobody in Windsor and that's who came out. Yeah. I mean, I had a, a few people come for the show, but it wasn't the throngs that I'm hoping for here in Toronto. Yeah. So all of that prepares me when I go out west to Victoria. And again, I have to do that hustle or I actually will have to do that hustle. Yeah. We don't necessarily need to see the full thing, but we need people to see 
why they should come. And especially when you have to go to a new place where you don't know anywhere, you don't have that fan page of, hey, Velvet's been coming to all my shows. I'll, I'll support him. I'll check this out. And on top of that, the better feeling fan is, I really like this idea. This yes. is something that I actually care about and actually have a connection with. I'd love to go see this. And I think that's, I mean, we both have done improv for a, for a pretty long time. We both have the experience of you do a show where there's no one in the audience. Right. Or even worse, it's just the performers in the audience. And so you're like on that high of like, oh, man, this is so great. Look at all the people in the audience. And then you realize that they're all just waiting be for on their stage. turn. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's just not great when that happens. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I, I had the good fortune of getting some feedback from the audiences who did come to the Windsor show. And one of them was, this is really important. Keep doing it. Obviously, you want to hear that anyway, but this is somebody who really connected with my material I have never met before mm -hmm. in my life, and she was deeply moved, and as was her family, but like very encouraging. I mean, my show is built to keep people as comfortable as possible while we are all a little vulnerable. And I think that the piece that you uh, that you put together for me on video captures, yes, it's very light. You know, it is a comedy, so there is that lightness to it. But also I get into it. And so people know ahead of time, oh, you're getting into stuff. Yeah. And I think it almost feels like you're teaching someone how to ride a bike when you're with the audience. And so throughout it, you have like, OK, we're going together. We're going together. But by the end of it, you're like, oh, my God, I have so many of my own personal uh, issues to go through, but I also feel like if Velvet can tell his story, maybe I can work on on my own story and, and create my own narrative. And I think that's kind of the way I left it. I I had the honor of watching it thousands and thousands of times while I was editing it, and it's <laughs> it's quite the show. Like I'm just really just someone who's a fan of of Velvet's work, of your work. Well, thank you. You know, this version of it, this iteration is, in my mind, the first version. Mm -hmm. I want to do the live theater version of this wherever I can. I think that because it's a one-person production or one person on stage, one person in tech, uh, it can travel a lot of places. Yeah. And so I do hope that it starts conversations. And even if it's not a conversation directly with me, I do hope people go home and go, oh, you know, that show reminded me of something I went through in my life and I've never told anybody. And get people to open up with each other a little bit. Yeah. And it's not necessarily opening up with you. You just want to start the conversation. Sure. I mean, okay. I do want to hear a little bit. Yeah. I want to go back to what you were saying about the improv and that is... This show for me, in being vulnerable, I am giving myself high stakes. And in a lot of improv, when there isn't a high stake, there is a lack of connection to it, both on stage and in the audience. Yeah. So, yeah, it becomes this throwaway entertainment that people may or may not talk about. They more likely will talk about somebody who is a highlight yeah. In, in either they had a really big character or they had like they had a great joke like they they become a highlight reel as opposed to that whole show was great yeah and i think that's a big issue is you see such a range of of creators and of improvisers and of comedians too where you have someone who's like they have a great story they've been doing this for a while they have the skills and when you see like a, a tight show it's it's i mean it shouldn't be but it, it's refreshing you know what I mean? 
And I find that maybe I have a jaded view on it because I've been seeing it for so long, but I, I love seeing people really put themselves out there. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to talk about a quick thing with when you have to do, when you only have X amount of shows, it's not something like the Holodeck Follies or like some of your other projects where it's improvised and you'll do another show, you'll have good on shows and off shows. Do you find that yourself thinking about that that pressure a lot or are you kind of just this is something that needs to be done. I'm going to do it. Yeah, I absolutely experienced that in Windsor. That was one of the other, that was part of my learning was that not only I paid for this, so I should get as much as I can out of it, but yeah, each moment counts. And there were moments where I was pulled out or I was distracted. And I find when I get distracted, then I'm out of it a little bit more and I want to reconnect. Yeah, I have to ground myself. I have to be present again. My material, thankfully, helped helped me with that, but there was that concern. I guess the imposter syndrome came up for me of the, why are people watching? I don't deserve to have people watching me because I am not as fully into it as I need to be. Uh, I think because this is so new a project and it's it is my first solo production, so it's still new enough that. Even if I stumble a bit, even if I'm not feeling it 100%, I'm doing it. And so there is no sense of, oh, I'm just going to skip a day or, or anything. Even in, the, even in the shows where it was one or two people, I am doing this as fully as if there were hundreds. Yeah, and I think that's, that's the big thing is, is you, when, you, when you have that audience of just performers and stuff like that, it's really easy to fall into that like well they they don't they don't they're not here to see me they're here for themselves and then you really you don't have anyone on your side but then at the end of the day performers do like to watch other performers because it, it, it helps inspire them they see really good improv and i'm like i want to go out i don't yeah. i don't feel bad about it and i saw probably the glint in your eye of of this project like months and months ago when you did almost like an improvised ted talk style like um like solo piece yes. at um a show that i collaborated on uh ass face which is out of toronto as well they do it every uh the, at once a month on uh, mondays talk to me about at that point did you have a glint of like i think this might be a friend show or was it i really like this concept where can i take it uh, let me take you back in history a little bit further there was a, a there was a, the the queen present danger uh, open mic night. I had an opportunity to do this format, which okay. is as you say, it's a question and answer TED talk, and I got such joy out of that moment. And that's because when I've done collaborative improv, I often go into the audience. I often engage with the audience right away and so for me doing that solo bit was an opportunity to like recapture those moments but also it was totally off the top of my head I felt like I was on fire in a way that I haven't in a long time and so I wanted to do more with it and so I started to shop that around town I didn't know yet that would be my fringe show that for me was just an opportunity to do solo improv, to put myself in a little bit of risk uh, and try different angles for it. And it feels really fun doing solo because if it, like when you had a win, it's your win. You feel so great about it. And it's not yes. even like a an ego thing. It's an ego thing. It just it makes bit, you yeah. feel like I am on the top of the world. Like when I did my first 
version of the film noir, the first drag of the cigarette, everyone lost it. And I was like, yeah, this is going to be a blast. Exactly. And, 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 and seeing you perform it, like you have a smile on your face. You're excited about it, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I do. I, I enjoy that style of performing a lot. I enjoy engaging the audience rather than worrying about, am I witty enough? Am I, am I anything enough? Like, I know that if I want to win the audience over, I sing. I know I can do that. Uh, I know that when I'm collaborating that I often am the one coming up with a pun or a, you know, or the uh, the funny take on the moment. To do solo, it's it's so much more freeing. I'm not worrying about any of those artifices. I'm just being with the audience. And you're not stepping on toes. You're just... Yeah, there are times in my excitement that I talk over someone. I've already done it today. So there are times that happens. There are also times where I get so worked up or so in my head in when I'm watching what others are doing. How do how can I add to what they're building that I get pulled out of what's actually happening because I'm I'm not present. Mm-hmm. Whereas solo, I have to be present. And in being present I take all that pressure off myself. And it's not always gemstones. Right. As you say, like when you have that win, it's totally you. Uh, But even if it isn't the best improv I've ever done, it's all me and I'm doing it by myself or with the I've engaged the audience in a way that we don't see around town a lot. I think a really cool thing just to jump off that is in the show, your kind of brand of humor is build up, build up, build up, pause, punchline you weren't expecting. And then kind of build up, build up punchline you were expecting. And it kind of bounces back between oh. it because it's and I know, again, Thank that's you. that is very much like breaking down your show to a to an analytical standpoint. But it's the idea of where it's like and we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the show. Um, a lot of people don't know a lot of things about you other than your performance side. Sure. And so, I mean, I haven't seen I mean, I, I just saw the the preview show, but. You see a lot of, here's something you know about me. Here's something you know about me. But the punchline is something you didn't know about me. And it's hilarious because it's so true. It's like, yeah. I, I go yeah. through that as well. And I think, yeah. especially when you're a performer and you're being this authentic and this raw in a solo show, you have to. You have to show a side of pe- that people don't know of you. Because it's like, if, if, I, if I could get everything I wanted to from Holodeck Follies, I'd go see Holodeck Follies. Yeah. So, uh, so I'll answer to that. First of all, thank you for the compliment. Yeah. I will say that that whole, uh, the format that you just described, that's just the way my brain thinks. I wasn't sitting there a- analyzing going, I need the punchline here. I yeah. will say as a result of Windsor, though, I did add in a joke very specifically to lighten the mood mm-hmm. because I realized that. But normally it's just me going, this is what I want to talk about now. It's just I'm neuro- neurodivergent. So my my, I don't have a linear path to where I'm going with it. I just know this is the journey I want to take for this story or, or this moment. So thank you for, for saying that it actually works <laughs> as a, in that kind of format. So I built this project as a gift for myself to, uh, to do the things I like to do. So I knew that I wanted to sing. I knew I wanted to tell stories, etc. But I also did it because uh, I'm 50 years old and most people don't know who I am. And that is all on me. 
I made those choices to shut down those connections or to just not share because that was what I was taught, right or wrong. Uh, and I, I kept that inside. And what I've learned now is that when you share, it makes it easier for people to share back. It makes it easier for them to be on your side. I spent most of my life feeling like I was the outsider, not realizing I kept walking away from opportunities to be the insider. So so it is as much as it is performative in that I'm on stage and I'm sharing my the tales I'm choosing to, to share, it is also just an exercise for me to continue to grow as a human. There has to be a point to it all. And I, and I think that a lot of solo improv, at least when I first started seeing it, didn't really have a point. It was just, I'm on stage. I'm confident I'm going to try something. But then you see stuff where it's like the re and I, I hate to bring, keep bringing it back to this, but the reason I did the solo film noir is everyone makes fun of film noir and improv. It's the easiest. It's the lowest hanging fruit. It's like, it's strange. That it's not like something like Western or something like that, but everyone loves, it's like, give me a genre, film noir. Okay. We're doing yeah. a film noir. Yes. And it's kind of, I think that was probably why I started doing it. Cause it's like you, you, you find it's almost like a, uh, not a satire, but almost like an observation. And do you find that this observation of doing a solo improv show where there's almost like a Ted Talkian vibe to it, where you're like, you're instructing the audience, but then there's a little bit of interaction and then there's more talking and then there's interaction again. Do you find that when you were creating the idea that you were looking at it through that lens of there's, here's a format that I think is very interesting or here's a format that I want to kind of satirize. The Ted talk format was key to me. I knew before I knew what I was going to, what stories I was going to share, I had blocked out. I'm doing this amount of time of audience engagement where it's this back and forth. So I knew that to be true. I worked backward from there. Well, who does this regularly? Uh, there are TED Talks, but then there are motivational speakers. And then I took that logic of, well, if I'm a motivational speaker, <clears throat> What is the point of this? Like, I yes, I have beliefs and opinions that I, you know, I believe improv should be a certain way. I, I could do that, but really, what is the point, as you say? So for me, it was, well, if, if I'm going to be a motivational speaker and I want to share these personal stories, I better either be not good at my job or having a bad day. So I'm choosing the route of having a bad day so that I can be vulnerable and, in effect have the audience be the motivational speaker and therefore I've taught them the skills to, I've taught them by being the example for them. Uh, and so all of those things were very purposeful, but it still required me to get up in front of audiences and test aspects of it. So back at the Asphase show that you spoke about, I was testing a very specific portion of what I was considering to include or not. Uh, and a lot of it was I wasn't sure what the ending point would be in my set, but I knew I want to examine... Um, I, I want to be vulnerable about, uh, you know, my parents or whatever. I, I can't remember that specific uh, suggestion, but it's I want to get into this and I want to see what it feels like to have nobody rescue me. 
Like it, you yeah, know, in exactly, collaborative improv, exactly. you have people either tag you in or or join you in some way, or sweep, or yeah. sweep. I don't want any of that. Give yeah. me my full time. I want to feel this uncomfortability, not because I want the audience to feel uncomfortable, but because I want to see what comes out of this challenge. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, it worked all right. <laughs> oh, it works. It was phenomenal. I um, it's funny that you were talking about testing an aspect because that was my my next question. Is is there something that from the get-go a joke or a moment that you knew that hasn't changed and that, that has been kind of cemented as shows go on that you're like this works this is something that not necessarily is the backbone but this is a pivotal moment in the show my opening number the one change was just the positioning i knew that i had to open my show with a song that because it is one of my strongest performing talents, mm-hmm. I have to feature a song right off the off the bat. And when I, I didn't have the lyrics for it originally, so it was later in my narrative, as soon as I found the narrative, uh, as soon as I found the lyrics for the song, I went, no, this is what I start with. Yeah. And, and so that song is called The Universe Provides. And part of why I featured off the top is it matches a philosophy that I've had for a long time. And I've just couched it in the metaphor of, of a song. Uh, so that's one that I haven't changed a word since I wrote it. And I, and I listened to the song over and over again, just the instrumentation. And then I just sat and wrote and went, this is it. Yeah. And I've listened to it many a time too. Cause uh, I, yes, got, you have. I got, I got to listen to it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's really interesting because it's a very, almost like sitting in like a seedy jazz bar. It's like the opening number. If it was a film, it's the opening number of the musical. And it's a side of you that many have seen, but not at the level of authenticity that I think you've performed. You have a very soulful, like kind of like, I, this is going to sound weird, but like almost like dripping gravitas like yes. throughout the stage. And and again, it's that's true. That is a compliment, but it's also like you can acknowledge the fact where it's like you when you get on stage, it's the Velvet Wells show. It's the right. Velvet Duke. And it's it's phenomenal. I love it because it it doesn't come from a place of ego. I mean, at least from an audience perspective, it comes from a place of this is where you feel comfortable. Uh, it is it is my go-to. I, not my go-to even. It is how I am. I have just owned how I am. Mm-hmm. The, one th- the other reason I set that song as my first song, I've actually had to train myself to keep my voice naturally where it is. In other words, this is my voice. But I lived through most of my life uh, speaking and singing as a tenor. Oh, really? And higher. Yeah. And, and I had to train myself to accept and live down here. And that's been a real joy. But that's only been the last couple of years that I have embraced it to the level that I did. So you're right. When it comes to singing, like this is the voice that gets people. I was okay at a higher, higher range. You have this kind of journey that anyone goes on is like finding their voice literally. And with you, you literally found your voice. Um, and I find in a one person show, that's what the purpose is, is finding your your voice and, and singing it to the to the heavens, basically. That's yeah. That's So I, as I said, I I wanted to pick a character who is not bad at their job. So the character is a motivational speaker. He is an expert who is, as much as he's an expert, still dealing with things. 
uh, the finding your voice, that is for me. For uh, If I were to pick a meaning for the show, it would be what I've now termed my, um, my byline of confronting anxiety and other acts of bravery. Because that is really, uh, finding your voice is a component of being brave and accepting yourself as being brave and, well, and just accepting yourself. So, so yes, finding your voice, uh, being able to use your voice requires that bravery. Yeah, of course. And I think that on top of just finding that bravery, it's like, it's just kind of going going through the steps of what, what does it take to be brave before you even like actually find that bravery? Cause I think that it's different for every person. When did you think you personally found the bravery to kind of be the, the velvet Duke as it were that be the, the, the main character in your story? Cause I think you do come at the world with a lot of confidence and it's, it's truly inspiring. And I think anyone who's performed with you kind of gets that off the bat. It's I'm going to be supported here by someone who really cares about what they're doing and if it's good or bad, they got my back. Thank you. That is a compliment I have received throughout my improv career. And I've heard it and I accept that that is true. But like I say in the show, there was a lot about myself. I didn't accept how courageous I was. I didn't accept that I was brave in any way. Uh, I have spent most of my life devaluing myself. So I, so the, at what point did that turn? I would say that started for me a couple of years when I came out as queer. Uh, and, and even just giving a label to that aspect of myself helped in every single other way. So if, if I'm brave enough to share this of myself, what else could I share? What else is true that I just haven't told or accept, received compliment for, but not accepted for myself? So that whole idea of stepping on stage with me is easy. Like I knew it was true, but I wasn't giving myself that same benefit. Uh, I started doing solo improv around that same time of, wait, if I'm comfortable to be on stage with what is it like if I'm the one who needs that comfort and support? And then it started to take off from there. And I think it's, again, being like uh, coming out as queer in any, in any, whatever your label is, you, you have this, you, you kind of have this worry that no one's going to be there with you. But then once you get out there, you have such a support system, you have such a team. For and, sure. And it's, it's quite familiar to, someone being like, Hey, like, I really want to start a sketch troupe. I really want to start an improv troupe. I really want to do this show. And it's like, I like that thing. Yes. I like this. And I, and I mean, we're going to go right into, um, talking about the holodeck follies for a bit. When you first started doing that show, was it kind of that idea of like, Hey, I really like improv and I really like star Trek. Can I marry the two together? And you found other people who were like, Oh, I love that. This this is going to be amazing. It, well, it started a little bit. Like I was already back into doing improv. My partner and I were part of a larger group, but it was very difficult for us to get everybody scheduled together. And that way it wasn't on them alone. It was difficult for each of us. And my partner and I were watching Star Trek Next Generation together for the first time. We'd both individually seen it, but it was our first binge watch of anything. And we finished that and the group was having difficulty scheduling. And it was like, if we did something together, or first of all, would you do something with me? Was the question I asked. And they said, yes, depending on what it is. And I'm like, 
we just finished watching Star Trek. We both love Star Trek. Why don't we start there? So for the for the first bit, it was the two of us. We were the dandies, and it was their name and my name put together, as well as the whole idea of being fancy. And then over time, I, I got a uh, musical director. I got uh, one of my other friends joined us. So it was the four of us for a bit. And then slowly over the years, we've added and people have moved on. Uh, so it really started from we have this passion for something. We're in the same boat. We know each other's schedules, So that's easy for us. Uh, let's just put it all together. And yeah, when you find that trust, when you find people where you can work with them and you're like, okay, I don't even need to ask if you got this because I know you got this. Correct. I know that you're going to have my back. And it's the same thing with a relationship. It's the same with creating. It's like, no matter what happens, you have my back. I don't even need to think about it. I know that at the end of the day, if I've had a bad day, you're going to be there to support it. If I've had a great day, you're going to be there to celebrate it. And I think that, that it, when you find that, even if it's not like a, a romantic relationship, if it's anything, when you find that support system, it is so, so wonderful. It is so wonderful. I And just to go back to improv, I know for myself, I am not a great improviser when I don't trust the people I'm on stage with. Oh, for sure. I know. I, I shut down in a way that I don't when I, when I have that sense of they have me. They may not understand it 100%, but I know that they have me and will support it and make it even better than, than I think it might be. Uh, and likewise, when I add into what they're doing, it's not this trepidation of do they like me? Uh, whereas, and not that I'm going into such situations of dislike but it's hard it's hard when you don't have that when you when the play styles seem to broadcast distrust so i guess the the final question that i, I want to ask you is do you find that you are having a more of an understanding or i guess the in regards to the imposter syndrome in regards to feeling like an imposter and to your own successes and your own failures do you find that doing this show is giving you a better understanding of your value as a performer and as a creator? The short answer is yes. The longer answer starts with this. Uh, the reason that I challenge my fears is I recognize most of them are unfounded and, I, and they run counter or contrary to what people have told me. Through this production specifically, I have started to embrace and acknowledge and internalize the compliments that I have been receiving all along. And I've started to give them to myself in a way that I never would. Uh, that whole idea of being enough or, you know, being found out, I was expecting at any minute, uh, not only was I going to be rejected for what I was doing, but somebody else was going to be, replace me in that thing. But, you know, because obviously they're better. I'm learning how much... Uh, I have to offer both uh, as a performer and as a human being and with that we end off episode 2 of I Don't Deserve a Podcast thank you everyone for listening again my guest Velvet Duke the Velvet Duke himself uh, you can check him out on Facebook under many a name the Holodeck Follies the Dandies there's a bunch of different projects he's worked on if you search him up you'll find some of his great stuff uh, check him out at the Toronto Fringe which is going to be July 3rd to 13th and you're performing at the Imperial, I believe? At the Imperial Pub, yeah. And then you're heading off to BC in August? Correct, to the Victoria Fringe Festival at the Intrepid Theatre. 
Thank you.